I believe that this chapter is one of the most important chapters, not only in Acts, not only in the New Testament, but in the whole Bible. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning into the 29th episode of Working with the Word. After an edifying discussion with Brother Warren Berkeley, we're back in the New Testament as we continue to orbit the whole story from the International Space Station level. Today we're zooming across the Book of Acts as God's plan has been enacted through the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of His Son, Jesus. So, now what? What do Jesus' disciples do now that He's risen and ascended back to heaven? How will the message of salvation through Jesus reach the ends of the earth? And could sinners who formerly stood against God's plan really be part of proclaiming that good news of Jesus Christ? Let's open the word up to the book of Acts and find out. I like how you describe Acts as the like the now what of the New Testament, because it, it really is that. The book of Acts is the glue of the Bible. You've got the Old Testament that looks forward to Jesus and the Gospels looking back upon Jesus and what he's done his crucifixion, his resurrection, and even his ascension. And then you've got the book of Acts that kind of connects that story to the rest of the New Testament. And if you think about it in this way, what would we understand about God's plan were it not for the book of Acts? Probably very little. Mm -hmm. And so the book of Acts is, is aptly called sometimes the glue of the Bible. Now, as we open up to Acts chapter 1, when you compare Acts 1 to Luke chapter 1, you find that Luke is actually Jesus' works volume 1, and Acts is Jesus' works volume 2. So in Acts 1 verses 1 through 3, it says, The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these... He also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so if you put those three verses side by side with the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, you'll see a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. There's the same author, same recipient, Theophilus, same emphasis on historical accuracy and truth. And you see that Luke is telling us the work that Jesus began in his gospel, and Acts is telling us the work that Jesus continued in the book of Acts. Not only are there connections to Luke chapter 1, there are also a lot of connections to Luke chapter 24 in the beginning of Acts. So after Jesus' resurrection, he is spending time with his disciples, and in Luke 24, he explains the gospel to his disciples, and he opens up the scriptures and helps them understand that what happened to him was what the scriptures said. And he explains it to them. He prepares them for what's to come. He tells them at the end of Luke, this is Luke 24, verse 46 and 47, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
So again, a lot of connections to Acts chapter 1. Jesus is preparing his disciples. The Holy Spirit is coming, wants you to stay in Jerusalem until that time comes. And especially this emphasis on you're going to be my witnesses as you take the gospel to the world, to all the nations. We're going to see that story played out in the book of Acts. So we've got this seamless transition from the gospels to Acts. And we see Jesus's crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. And here we have the now what, right? And this is when we come into the story. What happens next in the story? Before we quite get to that part of it, I want to bring up a point that I heard recently in preparation for a class on the book of Joshua I taught last year. I heard the statement that was made like this, that the book of Joshua is like the Acts of the Old Testament. That's something I never heard before, and after looking into it a bit more, I think I agree with some of the parallels that are being made. So I want to briefly bring up some of those, and maybe you'll consider some of these parallels and comparisons as well. In Exodus through Deuteronomy, you see Moses preparing the people to enter the Promised Land, and specifically for Joshua to take up the mantle when he is gone. In Matthew through John, you see Jesus preparing the people for the arrival of the kingdom of God, and specifically for the apostles to take up the mantle when he is gone. Joshua and Acts are the respective books that we see these events play out. In each book, we see a early victory that's described, Jericho in the book of Joshua and Pentecost in the book of Acts. There are internal problems that are swiftly dealt with. You have the sin of Achan in the book of Joshua and Ananias and Sapphira's sin in the book of Acts. Joshua describes a multi-stage campaign to conquer the land, while the book of Acts describes a multi-stage campaign as the gospel spreads. If you're curious to know more about the descriptions and similarities between these two books, we'll link an article in the show notes below. Now, speaking of that multi-stage gospel-spreading campaign, here in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, many people see this as kind of the outline that's given here at the beginning of the book. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's a fairly common way that people outline the book. Acts 1 through 7 is in Jerusalem, Acts 8 through 12 in Judea and Samaria, and Acts 13 through 28 to the end of the earth. Another way to break down the book is to divide it in roughly half. Acts 1 through 12 are mainly the Peter stories. Acts 13 through 28 are mainly the Paul stories. Now, that's not exclusive, but that's the rough outline we're going to use today as we break down the book and discuss it as we're flying over 245 miles above the atmosphere of this particular book. So we can't spend weeks in Acts as much as we would like to. We'll save that maybe for another day. But for right now, we're simply looking for some of those whole story highlights. Let's not put that off any longer. Emerson, get us started with Acts 1 through 12. Okay, so... Acts chapters 1 through 12, uh, we see in the, in the outline that the gospel begins in Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7, and then also in this section, we see that it spreads to Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 through 12. And these first 12 chapters of Acts really kind of focus on, on Peter's ministry, and, and there's so much here in these first 12 uh, chapters. And so as you think about what to focus on, I'm going to pick two chapters that I think are are really key to understanding this first half of the book. Okay. Um, starting with Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, uh, we have the story of the Pentecost. And I believe that this chapter is one of the most important chapters, not only in Acts, not only in the New Testament, but in the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. Because 
in Peter's sermon and what God does through the Spirit here, he puts the whole story together in a way that no other chapter in the Bible does. So in Acts 2, the story begins with the apostles. They're waiting in Jerusalem like Jesus has promised. And the Holy Spirit comes and the apostles are enabled to speak in languages that they had never learned. And the Jews being there for the day of Pentecost, they rush together. They're amazed at hearing this. And Peter stands up and begins to defend their actions and what they're doing. And so Peter is preaching to a mixed crowd. There's Jews from all over the Roman Empire. And he begins with a quotation from the book of Joel chapter 2. He explains that what's going on here is not drunkenness, but this is what God has said. And he quotes Joel 2 in verse 17. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And what Peter says is, what you're seeing and hearing right now is what God had said. Mm -hmm. And so the end of that quotation in verse 21, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit results in the salvation of anyone who calls on the Lord. And so Peter then answers the question of, well, who is the Lord? And the answer is Jesus. And his sermon gives us an, an excellent recap of everything we've talked about <laughs> in the Bible up to this point. Jesus is Lord. And he points to the Jews and he says, you killed him and God raised him up because that was his plan. And Jesus now reigns as king. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is sitting down on his throne. And in that sermon, he quotes from a number of Old Testament passages. We mentioned Joel chapter 2, which talks about a great salvation coming. Peter also quotes from 2 Samuel 7, which says, as we saw previously, this promise to David that a great king is coming from David. And then he doesn't quote from the book of Daniel, but you see the fulfillment of, of God's promise in Daniel chapter 2 that a great kingdom is coming. And so as, as Peter brings this sermon to a conclusion, he says in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And so as a result of this first kind of groundbreaking sermon, 3,000 people respond, they believe, they're baptized, and we have the beginning of the church. And the rest is history, right? <laughs> the rest is just showing how this message, the same message goes forth, and it shows that it's spreading, people continuing to respond, and, and growing from there. And so after Acts chapter 2, there's so much that happens. <laughs> The apostles are arrested, they're persecuted in chapters 3, 4, and 5. The church grows. Despite that, mm -hmm. the church appoints servants to help it function, to care for the widows. 
In Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches and is stoned. And as a result of that, this great persecution begins. And what's interesting is that that is the very thing that moves the gospel to the next stage, right? From yeah. Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 8, verse verse 1, it says, On that day, the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so you've got these concentric circles kind of going out from Jerusalem, spreading out. Yeah, it's interesting to see how so many times in the New Testament, when Christians are being persecuted, rather than a lot of withdrawal, we see it's almost like the heat is turning up what the church is is doing as it's growing. The apostles don't back down once they start being persecuted, rather they continue to preach, and the church continues to grow. When the gospel is being persecuted there in Acts chapter 8, rather than it being the end of the discussion, it's what takes the discussion even further among the, you know, to other places. And while some of that might happen as people from the day of Pentecost went home, I think that Acts chapter 8 and that persecution, while not maybe ideal, we might say, according to our plans and our standards, I think that was in God's plan to use that persecution to spread the message of salvation to others. Yeah, it was kind of the thing that lit their fire. It was, it didn't put out their fire at all. And so that is really interesting. And it's a good lesson for us today, how God can use hard things and even persecution uh, to work his, his will even today. Uh, that, I think that's one of the big things I take from the book of Acts is just how hard it was for the early Christians, and yet they didn't give up. They were devoted, and they were steadfast, even through their trials. And so once the gospel goes forth into Judea and Samaria, in chapter 8, Philip preaches Jesus to the eunuch from Isaiah, chapters 52 and 53. You have this huge headline news that the greatest persecutor of, of Christians, Saul, is converted all of the sudden. Right. And that lands us with chapter 10. I think this is the other key chapter when it comes to these first 12 chapters of Acts. Because in chapter 10, you have the Gentiles now receiving, the non-Jewish people now receiving the same message of salvation. And so chapter 10 begins with Cornelius having a vision to send for Peter, and Peter has a vision to go to Cornelius. Obviously, God is trying to bring both of them together. And what happens is, is Peter goes, he has to overcome this barrier that, you know, as a Jew, he would have never gone to a Gentile's house, let alone eaten with him. But he does because God is, is showing him he needs to do this. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is he preaches the gospel to him, and his family, the Holy Spirit comes, and they begin speaking in tongues. And there's a lot of parallels to Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. They begin speaking in other languages, declaring God's greatness in the same way that the apostles did in Acts chapter 2. Mm-hmm. And in Acts 11, when Peter explains to the other Jews what he saw and what, in really defending his actions, why he went to Cornelius to begin with, he draws a parallel to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost as well. He, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Who was I to stand in God's way? So you've got Acts 2 with the outpouring of the Spirit on the Jews. You've got Acts 10, the outpouring of the Spirit, the same Spirit, the same gospel on the Gentiles. And this is a major, major step in the whole story. Because if you remember way back when we were talking about Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, God promised to Abraham that you are going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And this is how it is going to come about. Now the gate is open for all people to participate in the blessings of God's covenant with Abraham. It's not just about the ethnic Jews anymore, but it's about all the people, anyone who was willing to come with faith and reverence and trust in God's son Jesus that can participate in these blessings. And so in Acts chapter 11, we have the first predominantly Gentile church, the church at Antioch, and that God is working through them. And that leads us to God's work through Saul, which, Jeff, you're going to pick up here in chapter 13. Tell us about the last half or the second half of the book of Acts. So like we mentioned, the focus shifts mainly from Peter and the other 11 apostles and their ministry to the ministry of Saul, who I'll probably be referring to as Paul from now on, even though his name doesn't technically change until about the middle of chapter 13. In Acts 13 through 28, it contains the details about Paul's three preaching trips, as well as his journey to Rome, where he's going to stand trial. And I want to remind us that Paul saw Jesus resurrected in Acts chapter 9 when he was converted. Like we mentioned, we don't really have time to get into every single conversion story, but they're all amazing and great studies to look at in our own time on a different time. But uh, we do want to make that point that Paul saw Jesus risen from the dead. And thus, while there are a lot of places we want to go, as we're looking for those whole story moments, we're simply going to highlight a few of the times that Paul's message of salvation comes through the resurrected Jesus as a prominent point. And just one other major whole story connection as well. So that takes us to Acts chapter 13, where we see Paul and Barnabas and Antioch at Sidia. Paul is given an opportunity to speak to the Jews and the God-fearers, or the Gentiles who probably were proselytes of Judaism, at the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so that's important to understand because those people are going to know what we call the Old Testament. They wouldn't have called it the Old Testament, but we call the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And so as Paul is going to preach, he's going to use that information to point them to Jesus. These people are going to know the Old Testament scriptures, and so he's going to look at what did the prophets say? What do you know about our father Abraham? If you say Abraham in a synagogue, people's ears are immediately going to perk up and say, oh yeah, we know Abraham. We know that guy. He's one of our great heroes. So as Paul is looking to get these God-fearers and these Jews to Jesus with the Old Testament scriptures, he proclaims to them that message, and then that leads to Acts chapter 13, verse 26 through 30, as he's going to be pointing out Jesus is the way to salvation. Brothers, sons, and family of, of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, he says, to us has been given and sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, and how he fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Paul goes from talking about Abraham and talking about some things of the prophets and things of David and how David is talked about a coming king who's going to come through his line that's been made in this covenant with God and him to 
this Jesus who you crucified is risen from the dead. The, the Jesus who was crucified in Jerusalem is risen from the dead. He is the way of salvation. The resurrection of Jesus emphasized two more times in verse 34 and then verse 37. And here's really, it seems to me, some of the big punchline moments of the revelation, the realization that Jesus is the way of salvation. It says in Acts 13, 38 and 39, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not have been freed by the law of Moses. Paul's making a pretty striking, cutting point there, saying that the law is not what's going to be the thing that saves you, but it's Jesus through what you're going to find salvation and freedom from sin. Now, people are very intrigued by what Paul and Barnabas have to say here, and they're encouraged to come back and speak next Sabbath. But however, as we continue to read there in Acts 13, we see that the Jews are not happy about seeing people leave their synagogues and going to listen to them speak. Yeah, I think that was the one thing that the Jews had a hard time, that that was one of the reasons they had a hard time accepting what Paul was teaching. And you can consistently see their opposition is because it sounded like Paul was preaching against the law of Moses, which he wasn't. And the other thing that I was going to say is that when you read the book of Acts, the resurrection of Jesus, as you mentioned, is emphasized over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. And that goes back to the theme of Acts. Jesus says to his apostles, you're going to be my witnesses. And a lot of times we use that word witness in a lot of different ways, maybe about evangelism, but Jesus is speaking very specifically to his eyewitnesses. That's what he's saying. And that was, there were really two arguments that the apostles made about Jesus is one, the scriptures foretold Jesus. And number two, we saw him resurrected with our very own eyes. And so those are two really big themes that come out from Paul's sermon there in the book of Acts chapter 13. That's right. And like you mentioned, the Jews struggle with accepting either one or both of those points. Maybe not so much that Jesus was resurrected, but to think then that as Jesus fulfilled the law that we're moving into this new covenant and saying that the law is not going to be the way that leads to salvation. And so in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, Paul and Barnabas say, fine, if you don't want to listen to us, we'll go to the Gentiles. We're more than glad to go to them. And in fact, they talk about how God foretold that happening. Yeah, and that just goes to the point, you know, about persecution that we were talking about. God can use these obstacles, which to, you know, from our perspective may have seemed like a big you know, a hurdle for the gospel. God uses that. The rejection of the Jews actually leads to them taking the gospel to more people, the Gentiles. And so God is just hurtling over these obstacles that we would think, hey, there's no way that we can get past this. Yeah, and those obstacles are very prevalent. Like you mentioned, the Jews are often following Paul on all of his preaching trips, whether it's this first one with Barnabas or later ones. They're basically pursuing him so they can try to persecute him and discredit him or do whatever they can. I think about the rest of this first journey. It ends with him almost dying at one point. Mm-hmm. And this is the first of three. You're like, whoa, the first of three? I, if that was me, I might say that's the first of one. But <laughs> instead, you see Paul continuing to go on as he returns back to Antioch in chapter 15. There's this discussion about how do the Gentiles fit into all of this? How are the Gentiles going to find salvation? There are some people from Jerusalem who have come up to Antioch and said, listen, there's some confusion, some concern. 
that y'all are teaching something different than what God wants there to really be. And so Paul and other people arrive at Jerusalem, and they have this, we often refer to it as the Jerusalem Council, where they discuss, are Gentiles saved by Jesus and the law? Are they saved by just the law? Are they saved by Jesus? How does all of that work? And so they had this discussion, and the council ultimately concludes that it is through Jesus that the Gentiles are going to be saved. Notice Acts chapter 15 and verse 28. This council in Jerusalem was not, okay, the Gentiles are going to be saved by Jesus alone because we had the best debaters and we had the most votes for that particular point. Chapter 15 and verse 28 talks about how they came to this conclusion by the Spirit. They seemed to do what was good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So it wasn't just that they voted and then it happened. The Holy Spirit said, this is what is true. He revealed that to them. And I think it's also interesting to point out the fact that Peter mentions in Acts chapter 15 and verse 11 that the Gentiles are going to be the way that the Jews are saved. It's not that the Gentiles are going to be saved the same way the Jews are, but he makes out the point that the Gentiles are you setting an example about how Jews will be saved. He says in verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Notice how he uses those pronouns there in Acts 15 verse 11 is another important part to understanding this whole plan. Like Emerson mentioned a moment ago relating to Acts chapter 10 and 11, this is a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12 that all nations will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. We got to keep going. Let's get into Acts chapter 17. We have another preaching trip by Paul, the second preaching trip, or he is in Athens, and here he preaches the resurrected Jesus to Gentiles. And rather than being people like we saw in Acts chapter 13 who are going to have a great wealth of knowledge of Old Testament characters and Old Testament scriptures, here's people who, it's a city full of idols. They worship all kinds of gods. And in fact, there's this story in there that talks about how they have this idol that's to the unknown God. They want to make sure they cover all of their bases, that, you know, we're, we're going to make sure we sacrifice and worship every single God. And Paul starts to preach to them, and he starts with that, actually. He starts with an idol, which is maybe seem kind of interesting, but he uses that to segue, to say, you have this idol to the unknown God. He says in chapter 17, verse 23, what you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul uses some of their familiar poets. He uses the story of creation, the fact that God has made them and everything that they enjoy, thus that gives them the right to rule, and ultimately is going to wind up bringing that to a bow towards the end with the story of the need to repent due to a coming judgment day, where the resurrected Jesus is going to judge all people, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, but everyone is going to be under the judgment of Jesus. And so some people think Paul's crazy for talking about a resurrection. They think that's ridiculous. There's no such thing as a resurrection, and they immediately disregard Paul. Some people are confused and think, well, maybe we'll listen to you a little bit more about that. We like to hear about new things, so we'll hear more about your new resurrected Jesus, Paul. But some people are going to be converted to Christianity here. It's amazing to see the impact that Paul makes, and even in kind of the struggle of these preaching trips, we might not think of Paul being quite as successful as we originally think. He doesn't have a 100% success rate, but he continues to do the work of spreading the message of that resurrected Jesus. Yeah, and, and I also love Paul's sermon here in, in Athens in Acts 17, because it shows how adaptable Paul was, that you know whenever he went to the Jews in Antioch, he preached one way, he started with the scriptures, he led them to Jesus that way, 
when he came to these Gentiles here in Acts 17 who had no knowledge of the scriptures, he started at a very different place. He was very adaptable in that way, but he led them to the same place. He led them to Jesus. And again, he emphasized the resurrection. I like what he says at the very end of that sermon, that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So, you know, to your point there, the resurrection was the thing that caused people to turn away. This is crazy. Yeah. The resurrection is kind of the key point in the book of Acts. So this is the proof. This is the demonstration of the truth, the historical truth of this message. Exactly. And like you mentioned, I, I, that's great that you pointed out the adaptability and the way that Paul would change the way you present the message but ultimately the conclusion of the message is always the same. Whether yeah. he's preaching to Jews or Gentiles or both, he's always going to be pointing people to Jesus being that way of salvation. So I want to jump all the way to the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, and those last two verses, verse 30 and verse 31. Paul does on a whole nother preaching trip. We're not going to talk about it all right now. He makes the whole journey from Jerusalem to Rome as he's been arrested and stands various trials. You get this kind of parallel to Jesus there as he goes through these unfair trials. There's so much in that last section we don't get to, but we do want to make a whole story connection to him continuing to preach that resurrected Jesus. This is Acts chapter 28, verse 30 and 31. He lived in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Listen to this, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and without hindrance. Now, that's not really the end of Paul's story. We have letters that we feel confident about actually come after the events that are recorded in the book of Acts, and we have some understanding or have a very good understanding about some things that took place between that imprisonment and maybe a later imprisonment that later was going to lead to his death. But you see that Paul's life is characterized and his work and particularly as it's described in the book of Acts, is focused on, I need to tell people about this Jesus guy from the Gospels. People need to know about him, that he's been risen from the dead, that he is the way to salvation, that they're going to find forgiveness of their sins, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're male or female, slave or free, you can find the salvation and the resurrected Jesus. This promise seed of Abraham, the coming king, the one who is our creator, our Lord, and our Savior. Yeah, and it's, and it's interesting that Luke chooses to end Acts right here mm -hmm. because he builds up, he spends so much time building up Paul's trial before Caesar. He goes through these different, you know, legal hoops and these trials that he stands before and 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 then all of a sudden we're just cut off. You know, yeah. well, does, does Paul survive? Does he stand trial before Caesar? What happens? And I can't speculate about exactly why Luke decided to end right here, but it is interesting that he does. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he's saying, or could be saying, that it doesn't ultimately matter what happened to Paul. What ultimately matters is that the gospel goes forth, mm -hmm. and that what, what matters is that Jesus's will is done, and that he is a witness, that Jesus uses his witnesses to go even to the rest of the world, as, as he had said. So as we think about Acts and moving forward from Acts, Acts is kind of the gateway to understanding the New Testament letters. 
especially when it comes to Paul's letters that he writes to various churches that he established in Acts and built up those churches like the church at Philippi or Thessalonica, especially the church at Corinth. There's two uh, very major letters written to Corinth and the city of Ephesus. And, And so, you know, without the book of Acts, we would have very little understanding of, well, how do those churches come to be? What's the history there? And also, Acts helps us understand those letters, not just from a historical standpoint, but also from a doctrinal standpoint. I mean, going back to the question that they were dealing with in Jerusalem about circumcision and the law of Moses, that is kind of the backdrop to several of Paul's letters, like right. Romans and Galatians, that salvation is by faith in Jesus, uh, and it's to Jew and Gentile. And so how do we work those problems out practically? How do we get along with each other within the body of Christ? So that's our to be continued today is Acts is going to help us understand those New Testament letters, especially from Paul. So for our challenge this week, we want to go back to Acts chapter 2 once again. Like Emerson mentioned, this is an important chapter, not just in the first half of Acts, not just in the book of Acts, not just in the New Testament, but in the whole Bible, as we see the importance of God's kingdom arriving here in this chapter. So with this major chapter, we want you to read this, but not just simply read. I want you to walk away from this chapter, being able to express or describe in your own words how this fits into the whole story. How does the Acts chapter 2, Day of Pentecost account fit into God's plan he's had from the beginning to reconcile sinners to himself, through the crucifixion, the resurrection, and ascension of his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for tuning in to Working with the Word today. We are nearing the end of our whole story series. Thank you for sticking with us through this journey through the Bible. Next week, we will overview the New Testament letters and how they fit into God's plan for Jesus and his people and for your life. Until next time, if there are questions or topics or books of the Bible you would like for us to cover in future episodes, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or you can send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.